Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. This week, I chat with Eduardo Antonio Diaz, the co-founder and project lead of DAPNode. We talk about the importance of running your own node, the rollout of ETH2, as well as what DAPNode aims to build and be in the future. But before we start in, I want to remind everyone that the Gitcoin Grand CLR Matching Round 8 is on now. There's only a few days left in the round. And we, the Zero Knowledge Podcast, have a Gitcoin grant. I wanted to remind you that if you want to support the podcast, now would be a great time. There's a lot of competition, as mentioned last week. So if you are thinking about donating, please do and head over as soon as possible. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, O1 Labs, the team incubating the MENA protocol. MENA is the world's lightest blockchain powered by participants. Their novel use of recursive ZK-SNARKs enables a constant 22-kilobyte blockchain that will allow anyone with a smartphone to sync and verify the chain in seconds. MENA has a growing technical community of more than 1,000 members that is spreading across 50 countries. And over the past 18 months, the community, alongside with the core team of O1 Labs, has been working on a rigorous testnet. And now they're close to finding a mainnet candidate. The last step is the adversarial testnet as well as a bug bounty program, which in total is offering 1% of the protocol in rewards for finding vulnerabilities, testing the network, and participating in challenges. You can sign up for this adversarial testnet, Test World. Signups are open today, but it's very limited, and it's limited to the first thousand participants. So if you want to participate, do sign up ASAP. Go to minaprotocol.com slash adversarial to secure your spot. You can also join their very active technical community Discord. I've added the link to both of those sites in the show notes. So thank you again, O1 Labs. Now here is my interview with Eduardo. So this week, I'm catching up with Eduardo Antunia Diaz, who's the co-founder and project lead of DAPNode. So welcome to the show, Eduardo. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure finally to be with you. So in, in today's episode, I think the plan is to kind of cover what DAPNode is, the role it plays. But currently, like, you know, in the last few weeks, there's been the release of ETH2. And there's also been a lot of conversation about the role of the node operator. So it's it's very timely to have you on the show now. Um, I think as a starting point, I actually want to hear how you would describe DAPNode. Like, what is it exactly? <laughs> Well, that's a very good question. We started this project three years ago, and the thing that we are realized at that moment is that we are developing decentralized technology. Uh, we want to switch from this Web 2 to a new Web 3, but the thing that we discovered is that we are using this technology in the same way that before. We are using centralized service providers, we are accessing to uh, Google or send our transaction using Infura, and mainly it's because we think that people need to have an easy way to do that. But also, we want to create a platform for projects that allow us and allow them to have this decentralized hardware layer. And and that was the purpose originally of Tabnet, to create this decentralized hardware layer, allowing to anyone to to run decentralized application in a truly manner. Was Dapnode ever, like, was the plan originally to be like a mining rig in a way? Like, did you think of it in the context of proof of work? Or was it always like a full node, but not mining? Yeah, the addition, it was never to create a miner thing. It was always just to put all the pieces together to connect IPFS, Swarm to an Ethereum node and be able to access to the, the web in a truly centralized way. So mainly it was hardware and software that uh, people want to put at home and make easy to access to these new technologies in a truly centralized manner and make easy to share with friends and family and preserve the privacy. Cool. I think in this, in the case of DAPNode, I kind of want to talk about it or think about it in maybe two eras, like the era of now, like what it could be used for today with ETH1. And maybe after this, we can talk about how it can be used in the context of ETH2. And I know there's people who don't like the separation of ETH1, ETH2, but like, for, for simplicity's sake, let's say, like, today, if I use DAP node, what am I actually running? What interacts with the ETH1 
network today? Yeah, okay. Well, we build this system taking into account that everyone is going to run an Ethereum node or something like that. The idea is just we, we want to create a decentralized package distribution. So that is why we use the Aragon package manager and the smart contract to publish the hash of uh, image. So that means that when you install a package on your DAM node, you can do it in a completely centralized manner. And that is why we use Ethereum at the beginning, because we want to have this decentralization and this trust based on Ethereum. So now people that are running DAM node can install several applications that we are publishing on, on this smart contract, but we also have a public smart contract in which anyone can develop its own package and publish them. So, for example, people can run can run now full nodes of Ethereum for sure, also TurboGeth, Archive Nodes, but also Bitcoin, Monero, Ecas. At the end, we want to create a, something quite uh, anoxic from the point of view of the user. So even if we are using Ethereum as a, our base technology, we expect uh, people to run several applications. At the end, this is like a... We can understand it like a mobile phone or something like that in which you can have several applications. It's a half of decentralized application. Oh, cool. Okay. So it is go so I guess I've always thought of Dapnode in the context of Ethereum, but I didn't realize that you could actually use the software and hardware for other networks as well. Yeah. And even also we are adding more application that is not just blockchain related. For example, you can run your own cloud on Dapnode. So you can access to your files or Bitwarden to to store your keys. I mean, it's just your own private cloud for decentralized technology on other things. Mm. What's your background that led you to build this? Well, it was a long journey. I've been doing several things, developing Android application. I also be uh, DevOps. I've been working well in an IT company. And then I discovered Ethereum, smart contracts. I uh, learned a lot about how to develop. And then I meet Jordi. By Lina Griffin, I, I discovered Kibeth and everything started to happen then. And yeah, during, during the Maker DAO audit, we come up with this idea. And, and yeah, it's close to be three years ago. And cool. we started to create a proof of concept that, that started to grow easily and, and fast. So you were one of these projects that kind of like, started right as the market was tumbling downwards, <laughs> if yeah. I get this correctly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That must have been hard. I mean, I, I remember that time. I mean, it was it was interesting because there was fantastic energy and people who were building really cool things. But there was also a little bit of this sense of like, where is this going? Because, you know, prices were actually going down and they went down for from like, if you're, if you're saying beginning of 2018 or so, yeah. like it was sliding down until the end of the year. So what was that like starting a project at that moment? Yeah, it, it was quite crazy. But the thing, it, it, it always has been a very small team at the end. And we get some grants to build this. Not, we don't create an ICO or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, it was really crazy. Uh, I told my friends several times that just because of we survived to two bear markets, maybe we need to get an NFT or something. I don't know. But <laughs> it was very, very crazy stuff. But at the end, we always want to spend this money development. So that is why now I have the feeling that we have a quite solid product. And yeah, I'm quite proud of all the results during these years. And yeah, i also and very proud of the team. Yeah, 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 it's really amazing. Cool. So going back to kind of the per this this sort of DAP node as a like what would you what do you call it then? Like what is the you have a hardware piece and you have a software piece. What is the hardware piece called? We call both DAP node at the end. Uh, the thing is, we started this as a software project, but then we realized that some people are maybe lazy or they want to have a more convenient solution, a plug and play solution, but. It's not part of our business. It's just to make easy for, for anyone to, to run now, to just buy it, plug in, and start to operate. I this see. is not always happen. Router and all the stuff is crazy, but we try to help people to, to make that happen. But at the end, the hardware is just a commodity on top of the software. It's just to make easy and more convenient. I see. So what your main kind of core business is still the software, but you've like, is this unit that you're selling as sort of the Dapnode hardware, is this something relatively standard that anyone can find? Or is this something you've created? 
No, it's, it's something standard. It's a nook, in, an Intel nook. And uh, even we encourage people to buy themselves and install the software. For us, it's even, it's even better because we don't need to give them support on that. Got it. But uh, yes, yes. And also, there are some people that want to buy our, our hardware because they want to contribute to the project. So, I mean, we don't get too much uh, profit on them, but it's something at least. And it's something you can, yeah, something like physical that you can send in the mail. It might be kind of exciting for people to receive it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a connection between users and, and the project at the end also. And like what just kind of going back to what you had said about it being this place where you can run multiple networks, is is there sort of like a drive to be more POS focused or is it actually proof of work or proof of stake agnostic? Like, do you want it to primarily be supporting the, the emerging POS systems or is it just like all systems? For me, so all systems. At the end, the, the idea behind Dubnot is... Uh, since you can run different applications and this application can have some incentivation for running there, you can uh, get some revenue for, for for running a node and for creating that. Mm-hmm. It's like we want to switch the value from big corporates and, and central centralized parties to the users. And and this incentivation model is the thing that makes all the thing happen. For example, projects like uh, Swarm that are, are going to start to have this incentivation model or or the thing of proof of stake. The, the cool thing about proof of stake network is that it's quite easy to provide this, depending mm-hmm. on on the consensus protocol. But if we think about this new proof of stake, in which with a small amount and a lot of validators can can run, it makes you to run several things at the same time. For example, I am running in my home right now Ethereum two, Avalanche, and also a Swarm node, a Store node. So at the end, the, the all the all the incentivization that I get from several projects that they think that is making my that not profitable. Okay. Yeah, that was actually a question that I that I was curious about because like when when I think of running a node, I always think of like the full node of a like extended network. But are you also going to be supporting like these other roles that are emerging? Things like the I don't know what they're they're called different things on all the L2s, but something like the committee role or the the checker, the I forget what they're all called, but you know what I mean. Like the, yeah. you know, for each for each one of these, if they have any sort of committee or decentralized group of people who are supposed to verify what they're doing as they write on chain, are you also supporting those type of things? Yeah, that that is the whole purpose of this project. At the end, is just to make easy to run these roles. Just with one click, be able to be a slasher of Ethereum two, or I don't know. Uh, well, Polkadot has another role, but. At the end, if it makes sense to run in a home, in a node, it makes sense to be in that node. At the end, we want to create a platform even for projects. So that means that if you have this cool project and needs a committee for doing something, it makes sense that you put in that node because right now we are, I don't know, we don't have numbers because we always want to be decentralized. So we don't have metrics about how many users that we have, but we estimate that we have around 300, 200 nodes, uh, people running that nodes. So that's, it's very good. It's starting to happen, a platform on top of this. Cool. So what do you, what do you think? I mean, I think you're the right person to ask this, but like, what is the benefit of running your own node? You sort of mentioned like, it's more decentralized if more people are running their own nodes, but like, why is that good? What's the, what's the real like benefit here? It's very hard to to convince people to run nodes. First of all, because of the complexity. That is why we developed this software to make it easy. And um, in general, I think privacy is a good reason to, to do that. Tools like Infura or other uh, node providers, I don't know if they are doing, but they can collect your metrics. They can know what are your accounts because you are always querying the same accounts. And even they can track you and, and know where are you doing that. So. If you want to preserve your privacy, you need to run your own node for sure. It's the only way to be completely decentralized and, and, and preserve that. More than that, uh, I think also that it's important for the network. Uh, people running node is important. For example, we have seen that not too much full node of Ethereum is a problem if, if people want to run like clients, for example. And in general, the thing is very hard. It's very hard to convince people to run nodes because sometimes privacy is not enough. Mm-hmm. That is why this incentivization model makes a difference. It's when people start to run these nodes. 
Can you say something more about privacy, though? Like maybe what isn't private about the way it's set up right now if you are using an Infura node or like a kind of hosted node? You sort of mentioned that the metrics, they can track you, but what does that mean exactly? Like what's an example of somebody interacting with that where they would be tracked? I mean, at the end, is is we have the feeling that we are running the dApps in the same way that we previously run the Web2 applications. Mm. So I mean that you go to a .io domain, so you are accessing to a DNS, to a public DNS, for example, Google, and then you are downloading a web page that is stored in AWS. So at the end, it's the same that before, and then you are interacting with a blockchain. Okay, that's fine, but you are using a centralized server provider that's usually in Fura. So at the end, you are using a new technology, but using <laughs> like before. Yeah. So we are not facing anything. That's so, it's so funny too. You're, you're very well described here, like the website that's hosted on AWS, like all of those regular touch points that are web two and centralized are still centralized. And then even the blockchain part, if you're relying on the on the node, like a, a hosted node for you, you're still relying on some central body. And that's that's kind of where my question is, is like, say I wanted to send a transaction, like if I'm relying on a, this centralized node, what does that mean exactly? Um, well, the thing is, when you are sending a transaction, you are exposing all your privacy to, to these providers. You are telling what is your account, when, you can do it mm-hmm. when you want to do it. Who are the sender, the receiver, the amount, the, the token, and all the stuff. And even for regulators, could be interesting to know this data also. So at the end, if you are exposing the data, you are giving for free, you have always this fear that someone can control that. But isn't like, aren't like aren't all blockchains kind of open? Like you can always see the transaction data after the fact, but I feel like the centralizing point, like does it have more to do with like when your message lands in the mempool? Like where yeah. you're, like, is that the part that becomes a bit trickier? I, I think more than that is the IP sometimes. Okay. So for example, with IP, they can track where are you and they even send the police <laughs> To your home if they want if you are not using tor or other privacy tools yeah so at the end is if they collect this information from several uh, points they can track you completely mm-hmm. so at the end i mean we know that maybe blockchain are dependent on the blockchain is not focused on privacy but giving all this power to centralized provider means that they can collect and, and make an amazing track of you. Do you know, we had a few weeks ago, I think, Dan Robinson on, we talked about this mempool, the dark force of the mempool. But I do wonder, like, with these centralized node operators, do they also, I, like, I don't know exactly how they work, but could they, in a way, control when a message reaches the mempool? Like, say there was this, like, front-running attack happening. Could it be the centralizing node who actually you know, is is a part of this or is that sort of at a different point in the in the transaction life? They can do for, for sure. I mean, at the end, you are sending uh, the transaction using their infrastructure so they can block you, they can do whatever they want. I mean, don't understand me. I, I love Infura and they yeah. are making an important role, but at the end, is the power that they can get in the mm. future. And, and obviously, if you are using them to transact, they can control even that, even the when the transaction is is maintained on, or if they come from run from running if they want. I, I never thought about the, like the node operator as that as part of that potential kind of like vulnerability of the system, but now I can kind of see it. Yeah, related to, to this, some weeks ago, uh, when uh, something some fork happens and Infura goes down for a while, a lot of that stopped stopped working. So. For me, it was a good test that, okay, the network is, is decentralized because it, it worked, it, nothing happened, but not the dApps. It not was a dabs. good test for dApps. Yeah, because a lot of them stopped working because of that. Wow. Do you recommend then that all dApp providers, like actually, I mean, I'm sure, I, I assume you do, but they should actually have their own nodes? Like, wasn't that originally the idea that the dApps would somehow have their own nodes running? I think so. And um, I mean, for me, it's enough if they provide you a way to change the provider. That for me is, is enough because you can choose if you want to use their uh, infrastructure or you want to use your own infrastructure to interact with the apps. Mm. That could be at least a good starting point. And, and then obviously, if they can have their own infrastructure much better. Cool. 
So one of the things that was recent that came out recently was this, um, and this is actually kind of a, a big deal on Twitter right now, this proposal of the Stable Act. Basically, um, this is a law or a proposal for a law, and it requires, like the requirement is that stablecoin issuers would need to get a banking license, potentially. And in the dialogue on Twitter, one of the people behind this bill kind of said, well, you know, if if somebody acts against the law, then it's up to the node operators or the validators or the, you know, miners to exclude any transactions from this entity. And obviously that got a lot of feedback of like, you can't do that. It's decentralized. But I wondered what your take was on this. Is there a way currently maybe that people could enforce such a thing? Uh, well, at the end, if you think about individuals writing notes, it's going to be very hard to go to every house and, okay, your node has validated this transaction. Maybe, yeah, the IP is again another one problem. But if you think about big providers, centralized providers, then the government can call the door and tell them you need to switch this off yeah. because you are making something legal. At the end, it's the same problem. If we want to be truly decentralized, we need to, uh, and we want to avoid this kind of, of uh, weird <laughs> laws, <laughs> we need to figure out a way, a way in which it's impossible to do that. And, and that is decentralization. For me, that is the thing that solves this privacy and this uh, government uh, <laughs> things. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, I also, well, sometimes I, I go and read about the, European Commission talking about to forbidding the uh, encrypted P2P communication. That is also crazy stuff for me. And I think, I hope that in the future, political parties and people around this start to realize that at the end, the technology is not the problem. The problem is the people. So mm-hmm. we need to focus on people, not, not in, in technologies. Also, I mean, to me, it's more that like uh, lawmakers need to spend a bit more time understanding how these things work and what would actually be possible to even legislate. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to move on. Like, so far, I think we've been talking mostly about Dapnode today and yesterday. But, you know, <laughs> in the last two weeks, there's been a, been a big update, a big change kind of in the ETH community. That is the ETH2 phase zero, I think. Is it phase zero? Yeah, has exactly. recent Has launched. And so it's kind of exciting because there was a lot of talk of like whether or not this would happen in 2020. And it seems like it has. I want to hear kind of what what's your connection to ETH2? Are you like planning on just being a place for validation to happen or like what's the connection point? Yeah, um, since one year, more or less, we focus too much in, in make happen to be a validator of Ethereum uh, 2, proof of stake on Damnot. And we did it. And uh, several people are right now running validators on Damnot. I don't know the exact number today, but uh, yesterday more than 100 blocks were half a graffiti with Damnot, and that's oh. incredible. And yeah, we believe that the purpose of, of proof of stake, is, one of the purposes is that just to try to decentralize this new mining power to individuals. That is why we believe that it was very important to make that happen in Damnot. And yeah, we figured out how to do it in an easy manner. Uh, that was the purpose because uh, we start to see people that doesn't know how to run a node. I mean, uh, this is not for DevOps. This is for people that maybe don't know how to run a, a common common line. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it was incredible. It was too much stress at the beginning for sure. But finally, it seemed that uh, people are, are doing that. And as I told you before, the importance of this is People, when they have this incentivization to run nodes, is when they are really doing it. So mm-hmm. one of the consequences of this happening of Ethereum 2 is that right now we have more ETH1 nodes in the network. Because so. people are like, oh, I might as well also run an ETH1 node. And the compensation exactly. is going to be coming from ETH2. When you just said, um, just one thing, when you just said you run a validator, as far as I understood, what you mean is you've created like a way for anyone to run a validator, right? Like it's it's more like you've created a portal for, for anyone to kind of join the network. Exactly. We are creating tools for anyone. At the end, this is thinking for individuals. We want individuals to run a node. We don't want big parties or big companies running and staking 
uh, service. We expect people at home running and, and maintaining a node in an easy manner, not not to make again the same mistake that before. Or for example, right now there are several exchanges that are offering this staking service. We want to have an alternative to that. I mean, I think at the end, a network should be mixed between several uh, entities and several options, but we, we want to provide something easy for individuals also. Cool. Does Dapnode, when you say though you're creating kind of the tools and stuff to be able to do the validation, are you also building a client or is this something else? Maybe help me understand the distinction. Yeah, this is something different. At the end, you can understand Dapnode as a rubber of clients. So at the end, we mainly tokenize this client of Prism right now and we put it in our Dapp store. Uh, so people can install it. But at the end, it's Prism. Uh, we are also expecting to to involve uh, Lighthouse also. At the end, maybe in Dapnode, you are going to have all the clients. So you can choose what client you do want, you want to use. Or even You can switch between clients in the future. Mm. Even Well, you need to be careful about that, but you are going to be able to do that. What is what what does it mean then? Like, So you just said you tokenize it somehow. Like, So if I had 32 ETH and wanted to validate on through Dapnode, what is actually happening to that ETH? Well, in, in, this is not happening today. At the end, the thing that is happening nowadays in Dabnot is, uh, is like a regular uh, process. You go to the launchpad, you deposit the 32 ETH, and you have your keys, you put in your Dabnot, and then you start to validate. I see. And and right now it's with Prism primarily, so that's like the client that you're using to do it. Exactly. Okay, and you're going to introduce more in the future. Exactly. That's correct. And we also add in some uh, tools like the Grafana dashboard uh, and other things to make easy and so you can track it. And, and, and we are also going to add notifications and tools for make easy to, to do it at home. Okay. I want to kind of, you did mention this sort of token part though, but let's revisit that in a bit because I want to kind of <laughs> finish talking about this ETH2 launch and how that went. So what what was it like for you? Like you <laughs> you were really in it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, it was very, very hard to be honest because at the end we don't know if everything is going to work at the moment, uh, and you know that you have a lot of people running nodes around the world, and and they are put a lot of money on that. So if something goes wrong, they are going to start to rob you directly, and the things can make go crazy for sure. Um, yeah, funny story happened, but but at the end everything was work quite well. Um, mm-hmm. Just in a small bug in the prison client related to people that put the uh, validator key on the UI, but we fixed the same day in a few hours. And since then, no one is having problems with that. But at, at that moment, that you don't know what is going to happen, it was like, oh my god! Oh, <laughs> <It man>. was, <laughs> yeah, I can crazy. totally picture that. That's such like the. But I mean, it's so funny because like launches, it's almost like you need this, you need these hiccups to make these launches as exciting as possible. And I have rarely, if ever, heard of a launch where there isn't something. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And this adrenaline, and and it's something that you don't control. So it's, it's, I mean, and the feeling that you have when everything goes well is is amazing. It's like, oh my God, this is incredible. How long was, you sort of said you started in on this about a year ago. You must have been, I guess you've been like practicing on test nets, like trying this out constantly on test nets. But like, how long has that, has the software lived on a test net as it is? Well, Damnot as a software, it always has been in, in mainnet from the very beginning. We okay. also uh, deployed the Aragogo smart contract for them in mainnet. We, it was crazy because yeah, Jordi was one of their auditors and we needed at that moment and we deployed it and we started oh, using wow. But I don't mean but, I don't mean the overall Dapnote software, but I mean the specific like the ETH2 validator yeah, software. Two, at the end, we follow the testnet that... Uh, client uh, teams deploy like uh, Metasia or well we have plenty of of testnet and and that is another challenge the thing that is happening is since it's free to set up a node in this testnet a lot of people start to set up uh, 1000 nodes and mm-hmm. then forget about the nodes so the network we, we need to restart the network again and it was a little crazy and that is why I understand that uh, incentivized test network like Kusama in the case of Polkadot makes a lot of sense because these new proof of stake networks 
as another way to to work. So if you want to have a valid network, I guess that this network needs to have some value, mm-hmm. and it makes sense at least for me. Yeah, this is. I mean, we've talked about this a couple times. This idea of the incentivized testnet and like why, why I guess more and more networks are at least considering doing something like this as they launch. But would you say like is ETH two phase zero? Is it an incentivized testnet? Because it's not really right. Like you can't no. do anything with it. Exactly. No. No. I'm talking that we need another test, yeah. another network. We need a, a parallel network with some value to make some tests, not going directly to main it. I guess uh, the thing is, I have the feeling that these test networks that use that are using Gorli Edge, that since it's free, uh, we are going to start and bootstrap several networks every time that we need a network. And it's crazy. For example, also. If you want to um, participate in this network, at some point, maybe you need to wait uh, 10 days or something like that. That is also too much. Time. Why? Because in a second two, you need you have a queue of validators. So you need to, oh. we, you have um, a hard limit of validators per day. So you need to wait. So if a lot of people go into the test network, then you need to wait into the queue, like in main at the end. Mm. And when that happened to Medalla, a lot of people try to go into the test network and yeah, the queue was full and yeah, it was crazy. So that is why we have now Piermont that is working quite well, but I don't know if it is going to be forever. Let's see. But things free, sometimes the people set up 100 nodes and forget about them. They don't sign the exit and yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Is there any plans for any sort of incentivized testnet, or is that just sort of like a wish of yours right now <laughs> into the into uh, the world? <laughs> yeah, to be honest, it's, it's one of my wishes. I don't know if it's going to happen. Maybe we are going to try to do something similar in Dublin. I don't know sure yet. We mm. are trying to figure out it makes sense. But uh, let's see. I guess it's needed. Not, yeah. I don't know if it's responsibility of that note or other project, but I think it makes sense. It almost sounds like it could be, I mean, this is obviously very speculative, but maybe the EF should look at something like this because this seems like, it seems like it could be valuable, even if it, I mean, say it even becomes like a shard. I don't know if that's possible, but like, you know, the, these first phases where you're kind of, it's kind of a, like right now when it's very limited functionality, maybe this would be something that they could think of as like rolling it into the eventual larger ETH2 anyways. Yeah, I don't know, but I guess it also in the future, maybe rollups that are going to interact with this Ethereum 2 and we expect to do that happen, they need to have this other test network to to make things because imagine that you have a rollup that are testing in one network and you need to move to another test network because the other one is, is not working. So it's going to be crazy. So I guess to have a, a stable test network makes a lot of sense. And I don't know if the only way to do it is with incentivization, but at the end, people, I think it makes sense that incentivizing since people are going to run nodes. And I mean, you are going to have the same duties that in the main, so why not? Hmm. I like that. So like to wrap up on the on the launch and the rollout and all of this like what's your feeling right now about ETH2 like looking forward are you are you optimistic do you feel like the community was very pleased cuz i mean at least on twitter everyone seemed pretty happy Yeah i mean i think it's amazing that after years of work everything's happened but and and everything goes good and goes in the right way i mean nothing happened yeah, I mean, we we have the the last people, but not more than that, and yeah, that's normal, and and, and it's crazy that that everything is starting to happen right now, and I'm very excited about the future and also this new rollup centric direction that mm-hmm. for me makes a lot of sense. It's incredible. I think that is just the first piece of the puzzle, and we have a lot of things to build on top of it yet, but. Mm. It's a good starting point. Um, migrating from one network to another one is not easy at all. No, never. What do you? What does Dapnode do? Like that? If you think of the software or hardware, like does it have? What, what do you need to build to make it resistant to slashing in a way? Like what's unique about these POS staking systems? Like what? What do you have to develop to prevent that? Or and how much of it do you actually? Are you feeling like you're responsible for? Yeah, <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, okay. Now, at the end, uh, educate people is very important. 
I mean, even if we try to protect that node, if people start to put in that keys on other pieces of software, they are going to be slashes for sure. So we cannot mm -hmm. prevent that. Uh, for example, Prism has a slasher protection inside the other client. So they know if you restart it or, but if you move to another Prism client, another node, you need to move that protection to not be slashed. In the future, we expect to add the remote signer. Uh, that is something that is uh, starting to be developed. Mm. Uh, that yes, this remote signer can sign in different hardware. So that means, for example, if you have your uh, dub node with the remote signer, you can sign in a server that is in maybe another country on a, or your friend's mm. hardware. So uh, at the end, you are the custody of the keys, but the the computation is happening in another another node, and that's that is very interesting because if other implementation, other clients uh, support that. For example, it can allow us to uh, run in the app node all the client at the same time, and you can easily switch from one client to the other one without slashing, because at the end, this remote signing is who controls this uh, slash protection, so you are safe. Interesting. Is there anything? Is there any equivalent to that, like in existing POS systems that you know of? Remote signers? I feel like I've heard of that somehow. Yeah, I mean... I think mainly the thing that is happening here is the difference between other proof-of-stake networks and Ethereum. The thing is, for example, if you go to Polkadot, you can uh, rotate your keys easily, but that is because you have a blockchain that has all the functionality. So you can publish and you, um, you can make this kind of thing. But since Ethereum is just that, you are not able to do that. That is why we need to, to use this technique to... to I see. To make that. Do you think but, eventually ETH2 will have it, though? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I mean, at the end, for me, from the design point of view, you don't have any reason to slash people that just are making silly things because, I mean, they don't take care of all these things. They are not attacking the network. So, exactly, yeah. I mean, we need to protect that, them from, from making that happen. So any kind of protection that we can add on chain to that, mm -hmm. I think it makes sense. Is there anything else that you do, though, to help protect the those that have actually validated with you? Is there any sort of indicators for them if, like, the, you know, internet is down or they've been offline for a period of time? Like, I'm just trying to picture what this feels like for a, maybe a non-technical user trying to use Dapnode for the first time staking. Like, what can they expect to see? Yeah. I mean, there are several tools to, to make that happen. At the beginning, when you set up your node, you have the Prism UI that gives you some information about the status of your node that is quite interesting. We also have integrated Grafana and Prometheus. So you can, if you want to have more metrics, you can take a look to all the things that are happening in your node that is really amazing. But maybe it's too much techy for some people, I don't know, but you have it. And in this Rafana, you can configure, if you want, alerts. For example, if you miss one attestation, you can get a notification in Telegram or another channels. And also, there are tools like Bitcoin Exchange in which you can register your validator and you, get, you can get notification. One important thing related to that is monitorization is in the same system. If, for example, you lost the internet connection, you lost the, the metrics. That is why it's important to have these external things checking your nodes, not just the monetization inside that node. I see, I see. So let's step into the future of the project and even of like, you know, these node operations. Like what's what's what are you looking at kind of going forward? Yeah, the thing is we recently announced announced our future plans. And the thing that we are seeing is if you don't it's probably the most decentralized network at the beginning because a lot of individuals participate on the network. But we have the feeling that uh, centralized uh, staking providers are going to appear, and, and they are already appearing. Because Ethereum 2 has some risk from the individual point of view. Uh, you are going to lock your eggs for two years, three years, mm -hmm. maybe. You need to maintain a node and also that you are tied to these keys for two years. You cannot shut down your, well, you can sign an exit, but you are losing this, this revenue that uh, are you getting. So um, we believe that big parties like Coinbase and it's happening uh, are going to give you an easy way to stake. They just click activate, you are staking, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And they are creating virtual pools. So at the end they control the legacy, they can have this liquid that is not real and it's centralized. And 
we truly believe that this is going to happen. And we want to propose an alternative to that. We think that if we want to have a healthy decentralized network, we need to figure out how to propose an alternative to that. That is why we want to create a DAO. The idea behind the DAO is just to put uh, or create two pools of people, the people that want to stake and the people that want to validate. And right now, there are several projects that, that are trying to solve this problem also, but they are all, always, uh, or that is my feeling, they are trying to focus from the point of view of the staker. In our case, we want to focus from the point of view of the individual, as of the hardware and the validators, since we have been working on that direction three, since three years ago. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to cre- try to create a decentralized trustless pool of validators at the beginning. We are trying to figure out how we can do that. There are uh, one project that is happening on Ethereum Research that is the Secretary Validator that maybe can can make sense, but we are also trying to figure out other alternatives using BLS uh, trickly to be able to create this trustless pool of validators. So that means that for me, the key point of all of this is if you have the hardware, you can start to validate and you can go outside the validation pool if you want. And also you can, if you are running a validator yourself and you want to have more ETH and get more reward, you can do it that. And that mm. is the first step to create this trustless pool of validators. And as a consequence of that, then it's when we can tokenize these deposits and then we have the liquidity as a consequence of this. But the vision ah. is the reverse wide. We start from the point of view of the validators. Yeah. So that's a question that I wanted to dig into is this idea of like the liquid assets of these staked tokens. But I wondered before before we do that, I want to sort of understand the pool idea a little bit more. Because, mm-hmm. you know, ETH2 validators, it's this, the way I've always understood, it's like 32 ETH only, right? Per validator. Mm-hmm. And so you can have lots of small validators validating with their 32 ETH. But when you think there, it doesn't have, at least so far, the ETH2 spec that I've, that I've understood, it doesn't yet have this concept of like delegation. Exactly. And that's what I understand the pools are supposed to sort of signify or do. But how does it work? How do you actually pool? If you're only allowed to do 32 ETH, doesn't it mean you have to inevitably hold custody of these tokens and then submit them? Or is there other ways to do it? Yeah, that's the thing that we are trying to figure out. We are writing the white paper ready to us. And cool. we have several ideas. The one that we are just trying to write down is uh, to use a distributed key generation for the validator key and have a kind of council that has who creates this uh, key and then split that for every individual that is part of the pool. So that means that this council can select one of the validators and can switch to another one, but they never have the custody of the key at any moment, neither the validators, neither the council. Oh, I and see. that way is non-custodial and decentralized. So say, like, as an example here, like, say somebody only had four ETH, but they want to participate. And like, so are you collecting up to 32 ETH from smaller ETH holders and each one of them would have, would be part of the committee that holds the key? Not exactly. The idea is we tokenize this deposit and then we pack it in 32 ETH. And then this council get, I mean, not this council, the DAO deposit on the deposit smart contract and then the key is generated by this council of, of, of validators. So at the end is, I mean, ah, the I DAO the, has the, the control. The council is the validators, not the token owners. Exactly. The council is, okay. is like a protocol layer that uh, allow us to not be custodial of the key, but also be in control of who is the validator that could uh, validate that is. Mainly. I see. It's complex. So it's, it's two things, right? So the, I see there's like a pool of like small token holders or big maybe, but like whatever, like various token holders. And then there's also a pool of validators. Exactly. And, and then there's a mechanism in between them to be able to like match up the token holders, ETH, package it into 32 ETH, I guess, give them something back. Exactly. That like proves that they have access to it and still, but still not like just have it sit with one of the validators, but rather like live like, actually, no, t- explain this part. So there's a committee of validators, but then is it that the committee decides which validator at any given time will validate or like take in that 32 ETH package? Is that kind of what their decision-making is about? It's more or less at the end, at the moment that you deposit the Ether, you, da- you don't have the control of Ether. It's, I mean, you, yeah. the only thing that you need to, to be a validator is the validator key. 
And so maybe the idea of this council and these validators is to split this key in a way that it's not custodial, I'll allow us to switch between uh, one uh, validator and the other one. That is from the point of view of the proof of validator. And from the point of view of the staker that can put the ETH and get the sticky ETH. And, and finally, the DAO is who makes this connection between both bullets, who create the balance between both authors. And are you not worried? I mean, is like the centralizing figure here then could be like the DAO. But, exactly. Like, the DAO is decentralized. <laughs> but you're trying to avoid, I guess, having Dapnode be the centralizing body that's like doing any of the decision making here. Exactly. We don't want to have that. And for me, it makes sense that it is controlled by a DAO and to split the control between the actor of the system. So part of the token of the control of the DAO is going to be to the stakers, other part is going to be for the validators. And also maybe we are going to give some tokens for the client implementation. So we want to incentivize client implementation and diversity. So at the end, it's, mm. it's about to align motivation and, and, and align um, motivation between actors. When when I think of validating in any way, though, I always think of like running software. So who's running it? Like where is the active validation happening? Like on whose computer, basically, is what I'm trying yeah. to understand. Mainly the thing that we want to achieve is imagine a validator at home and uh, it gets an attestation. And the idea is I'm going to sign with my part of the key and I'm going to send to the, this committee. Uh, I'm going to make a broadcast. And when I get the first N of M responses, I'm going to aggregate them. And that is the signature of the blocks. So it's like I made some part of the work and this council helped me to verify all the, all the process. I mean, it's like I collect all the signature of them and, and with my one, and then I make that happen. That is one of the challenges of this DAO. Uh, we have other two challenges to, to solve, to make that happen. One is uh, the S1 withdrawal situation. Uh, there is a channel yeah. right now in Ethereum research. The thing is... Withdrawal. Is ETH1 withdrawal? Exactly. The thing is, yeah. right now, you can only um, use an, uh, a BDS as a withdrawal key. And the idea is just to figure out if it's possible to add an Ethereum account as a withdrawal key. So that is the thing that uh, unlocks this DAO. Because if all the ETH can go to a DAO, then you can split this Ether between the holders of the tokens that you originally give to them. And uh, I imagine, well, we are just in conversations and we, we are trying to create a lobby around that. And we have several ideas and we expect it even... It's hard to know because the future of how a withdrawal is going to happen is not too much clear yet. We imagine like a kind of a massive migration of rollout, but well, at the end, we are going to try to make a proposal and, and, and try to be the champions of that or at least help to make that happen is our mm -hmm. role on that. And the other piece mm -hmm. that is missing is the um, the how to connect this Ethereum 2 to Ethereum 1. And it's the how to get the balance of all the validators of the of the DAO into Ethereum ones to so we can give the validators the performance and also penalties and all this stuff. I see. That's actually that's so interesting. Yeah, this this connection point. And right now, I mean ETH one has a lot of tools and things, but ETH two doesn't. So is it is it on that side where you just like there's nowhere to lock in on the ETH two side yet? Yeah, here is when we expect or we are trying to figure out if we can use the knowledge technology. So the thing that we need to know is the balance of all the of all of this DAO and even if the balance of this validator individually. So we need to have a way to prove on chain uh, the current balance of these validators. Mm -hmm. So mainly the idea that we have in mind, maybe or right now, or we need to research about that is to use a kind of optimistic for publishing the finalizing hash of the Ethereum 2. And then create a knowledge proof with all the balance of these validators and submit the, the this knowledge proof on chains. So this way is more more efficient than using traditional oracles and allow us to prove all the things that we want. Cool, that's exciting that yeah. you're delving into the zero knowledge world. Yeah, or and maybe maybe yeah, we need to figure out. I yeah. mean. It should be doable. Uh, we need to figure out about how many times the proof takes, but at least it seems that the technology that we have right now is allowing us to build this. But cool. our current state is we are going to write a kind of white paper and we are going to expose to, to the world and let's see if people believe that we need to build this. I mean, we, mm -hmm. as I told you at the beginning, we don't have a big team. 
we are right now, I think, five people. And this the moment that we have more people involved of this. But we are trying to get people that want to build uh, this and help us uh, to build this uh, vision. For example, recently, Afri just joined us to the team. So it's... Um, oh, nice. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. We are really excited about all the things that are going to happen. Cool. We, I mean, Afri was on the show. Afri was on our, like our fifth episode or something like that. We talked <laughs> yeah. about like the history of yeah. how, like how he had gotten into it. <laughs> um, that's so cool. We had mentioned, we had just mentioned this idea of this liquid token. Mm -hmm. But I want to kind of revisit it now that I understand a little bit more how basically pooling works, how the, the, the DAO interacts with this validator committee how like where does the this liquid token potentially live is this li liquid version of eth2 staked is that something that you picture being part of this construction or is that like a secondary project um in the system that we are envisioning right now you can need to understand that we are going to have uh two tokens one is this liquid s so that means that when you deposit you get this rapid ETH. it's like futures wrapped and, yeah 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 Although I guess it's not wrapped ETH because that exists. Yeah. It's like wrapped ETH too or something. Maybe decentralized ETH or know, if we need to find a good name or liquid ETH. I don't know. But mainly the idea is with, if you have that, you can easily put in, in your shop. So you, you you have this liquid ETH. You can buy people okay. and you can trade easily. And one of the risks that you have if you try to make this liquid ETH uh, in a centralized manner is that the law can understand it as a security. But if you do it, as a DAO, then it's not a security. It's just an utility. And that is a key okay. point. And you can try it in Uniswap easily. And the other wow. token that we are envisioning is the, the token of the DAO. And, uh, and the idea is that using, for sure, Aragon B2 for making this DAO happen. And we want to split this token between the actors. So, for example, imagine that you make the deposit. If you stake this uh, liquid ETH in, uh, well, in a small contract, you get this DAO tokens, but because you are telling us that you want to be part of, of this DAO, you want to have make a decision on, on the things that are, are going to happen. And also we are trying to figure out, and we are, I mean, when I, I try to explain uh, incentive-based test network for Ethereum 2, I trying to figure out if this token of the DAO could be also a token for a beacon chain. So we have this beacon chain with a native oh, yeah. tokens of the DAO, because at the end it's like put all together. Hmm. But how would that work? The beacon chain would accept or like work with the token from the DAO? Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the I ideas. Always, I always understood the beacon chain, though, as being a singular token sort of like in between chain somehow of the shards, but maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but imagine that, um, for example, like it's working right now with Gorli. You have this Gorli ETH and you deposit on a smart contract and then you get this on, on the Bitcoin chain. And, and the idea is the same. You stake or you deposit this DAO token into a smart contract and you get this in the Bitcoin chain. Okay. Got it, got it, got it. So it's still you're doing sort of this other this uh, once again you're kind of wrapping it yeah. somehow or yeah, like you're converting it, means, it yeah. somehow. So when when we think about a lot of these like liquid asset liquid staked assets, I don't, like I've heard this actually described in different ways, but we'll call it that for now. Uh, one of the questions is: Should this be created by some group outside of the development group, or should it be already built into the protocol itself? Because if it's let out into the wild, then it can kind of go wild and could potentially like hurt the security of the underlying system. I think we've mentioned this a couple times on the podcast, where it's like if the liquid token is able to generate more interest than the reward that the POS system offers then is it, it potentially would encourage people to like take it out eventually. I guess because the ETH in this case is locked, it's not a huge issue. <laughs> but do you know if like Ethereum themselves, like the, the construction is taking into account these liquid things or does it actually fall to other projects like yourself to come up with that? Like, do you know what the thinking is um, in the ecosystem around this? To be honest, I think the thing that is happening naturally is that a lot of projects are trying to create this liquid test. And for me, that makes a lot of sense to not fall in the same problems. I mean, we don't want to centralize all the sticky needs on, on them, for sure. <laughs> and that is one of the things that we expect the, the DAO control, for example, how many ETH we are going to accept, for example. 
I think it makes more sense to have this actor around the world to, to I mean, for me, diversity is key on all this. Mm. And that is why I believe it makes, it makes more sense that it's outside of the protocol and it, that happened, like it's happening right now. But yeah. I think that it's important uh, that the developers, the, the core developers, help to build these things. So, I mean, at the end of this proposal of the DAO, a lot of pieces are not doable today. Um, but our intention is to try to make that happen. And, and kind of with the support of the core team that are developing ETH2. So they yeah. might have to build certain things so that you can actually do this. At the end, this is our ambition of a decentralized Ethereum. And mm -hmm. it's how we expect that it's going to be built. But let's see. <laughs> That's awesome. This is super fascinating. I mean, it's making me really... I. I realize how much I need to do also just a recap of like where ETH2 is at because I haven't, we haven't done an episode on it in a long time. <laughs> we keep mentioning it. It keeps coming up some for some reason, but, but <laughs> we haven't actually dug into it. So this is maybe a to-do for me. Uh, but this is super interesting just to think of like all these different projects creating this underlying infrastructure. And then you can kind of picture how some of the like bright minds that you already see in the ETH1 ecosystem who are building these like very novel, sophisticated tools or constructions or, you know, swapping things and AMMs and that whole world. I'm just, it would be so curious to see what they do with this as it, as it develops. Yeah, I, I guess the future is going to be amazing. I, I don't have doubt about that. And also the relapse, I'm very excited about that the next year. I mean, you, if you try to figure out what, excited you years before it was completely different today so it's, it's so this technology is going so fast that i mean I know. it's very hard to know but it's very uh, cool it's very exciting also i have a last question that i want to ask you and that's about sort of zk computation I mean, you know you mentioned this sort of l2s or like the the roll-up idea and some of them are using zero knowledge proofs and some of them will need places to actually do the computation for those zero-knowledge proofs. Some of them are doing it on-chain somehow, and it's not always the best idea. But what, like, have you thought of, in the context of Dapnode, have you thought of including somehow ZKP computation or providing any infrastructure for that? I don't know if it's if it's in your wheelhouse, but like, yeah, what are your think? What's your thinking on that? Yeah, we have been always uh, thinking about that because we truly believe that knowledge technology technology is going to be the future. Oh, that is my feeling, my personal feeling. And um, the thing is, I expect in the future that some FPGAs or some kind of things can happen, and then is this thing makes sense to put in a hardware box, then we are going to do. For example, one of the projects that I also involve is Island3, and, and one of the ideas that they have is to computate these claims in your own hardware on your uh, your agents. So that is why we expect in the future when projects need to make this computation in a private uh, way, because right now the feeling that I have is the thermal technology in Rollup is most used for compressed data, not for privacy. Mm -hmm. Right now, yeah. It, originally, it was very privacy-focused, but there does seem to have been an evolution towards more like scaling or com compression is also how I think about it. Yeah, yeah maybe in, the, in the, the next version of Relapse, but right now it seems more about compression than privacy. Yeah. And at the moment that you want to add privacy, maybe maybe you need to do it in your in your house, in your home, and then is when we expect to add that to that. Or also imagine trying to imagine a blockchain that want to use technology and then have these nodes around with this specific specific piece of hardware. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as the future, I, I expect using Damnot as your generally charging. So uh, it can compute anything that you need and, and not just to move your mobile phone. I, I hope that maybe in the future mobile phones are capable, but I guess that when we start to have uh, more complex proofs, then it's going to be possible to do in a mobile phone. So having these agents makes maybe makes sense. Interesting. That's super cool. I'm curious to see how that goes going forward. And it's good to hear that you're working with the folks at IDEN3, I guess Jordi as well, Yeah. who, by yeah. the way, was on the show. And we'll, I'll add the link to his episode as well so you can hear a little bit about, about what they're doing. This is very exciting. <laughs> yeah. You might need to grow your team at some point. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I hope about so. It. <laughs> I mean, uh, as what we talked previously, um, survive with Grant is very hard. So, yeah, we need to get another way because we have a lot of ideas and... and 
it's hard to make that happen in a small team. Yeah. But yeah, we we ambition to make a big team. And at the end, we are trying to create an ecosystem. We are trying to put together all the pieces to put IPFS, Swarm, Blockchain, Ethereum, um, Theranology Proof. I mean, at the end, it's, it's too much. And But I think the future is, is going to be really amazing. Or I hope so. I, I'm very excited very cool. about that. Well, Eduardo, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing a little bit more about Dapnode with me. Um, I've learned a lot through this. And I and I can also tell I still have to learn a lot. There's a lot of documentation <laughs> that I should be reading. Do you have anywhere that you maybe want to send people who want to find out more? Yeah, well, we have uh, our website that is dapnode.io and we have also a Discord channel. Uh, the, the cool thing that is happening with the Ethereum 2 is that our community has grown a lot. And right now we have plenty of people willing to help other ones to run a node so that is really amazing and we are very excited to do that so please join us and, and let's start to make this change cool all right so thank you again and to our listeners thanks for listening <laughs>